So the reading tonight is from John 18, verses 1 to 27. And it's page 1086 in the Church Bibles. There's a lot of Bibles up here. <laughs> when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, gilding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father had given me? Then the detachment soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. There's only a certain number of Bibles that you can use. I'll put, actually, I better not put them on the floor. Before we turn to uh, God's Word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have the freedom to be able to come and have Bibles in front of us. Um, Father, we know that there are times, even in this country, when to be able to open the Bible, to look at it, to study it, is something that was very, well, it ended people in prison. There were people who were burnt at the stake just for the, the, 
the wonder of being able to take your word and bring it into our language that we can understand. And so, Lord, we don't want to take the privilege we have of being, op- being able to open your Bible, to open your word lightly. We want to take it because it's precious. But it's not just about a book. It's about the fact this is your book. And we pray that you would help us to understand what you want to say to us in our time together this evening. Amen. Um, We were reminded just a moment ago that we're going back to a series that we were looking at. Um, Well, that's a good question, isn't it? When was the last time we looked at John's Gospel? It was sometime in December. And I wonder who can remember who was preaching that last time. So. It wasn't me, I don't think. don't think it was. No, it wasn't me. Um, and more to the point, can you remember what the points were that were taken from chapter 17? I'm looking at the church treasurer and thinking, why ever not? Those of the, you that are studying, there's a wonderful word that's used. It's revision. Is anybody doing any revision or have to got any revision lined up? For a certain age group, that's... Not a very pleasant word to think about. For those of us that are a bit older, it's reminder, because our memory's not as good as it used to be. And what we have in this passage this evening, something which is really wonderful, there are so many links back to things that were being talked about in the previous few chapters, the bits that we were looking at before in December, and we're going to use those links as we try and open up this part of God's Word tonight. And we're going to do so by using four questions and probably about five or six links. So the first question is a question that we might have asked the disciples as we walked, see them walking through the streets of Jerusalem. Walking through the streets of the route, Jerusalem from the time they spent with Jesus in the upper room where he'd been talking to them, he'd prayed for them, and then they left. We have that at the beginning of verse 18, don't we? When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Um, For those whose sense of geography isn't great, uh, if you look at the very back of your Bibles, uh, on the last page, I think it's on the left-hand side, there's a map of Jerusalem. And really, this journey is like starting here in church and going to the very top of Bitten, and then Caiaphas' house as we're going back somewhere near the Guildhall. It's a very convoluted journey that goes on. You can see in the map, at the bottom left of the city of Jerusalem is where it's thought that the upper room was. The Mount of Olives in the top right. Then the house of Caiaphas, almost back in the same place that it started. And our link in there is in chapter 14. If you go back to page 1083... The very last phrase in chapter 14, Jesus says to the disciples, come now, let us leave. And then you've got chapter 15 and chapter 16 and Jesus' prayer in chapter 17. And then we're told in verse 1 of chapter 18, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Now, I don't know how things work in your home, 
Um, when our son was about three, he knew what it was to procrastinate. It's a lovely long English word, isn't it? It means just to, to put off things as long as possible. And we'd be saying to him, Matthew, it's time to go. And he'd say, Dad, I'm just... Matthew, we really need to go. But, but Dad, I'm, I'm just... And he'd put off and put off and put off. But when Jesus left, the disciples went with him. They'd had a lovely meal together. They drank a number of cups of wine. That happens in a Passover meal. And it was probably quite cold outside at that time of year. But not one of them stayed behind. They went with him. And at the beginning, at the end of verse, uh, chapter 14, when he said, come now, some didn't say, oh, um, just excuse me, I've got to go to Asda first, but I'll see you where we're going to meet. They went with him. What are you doing? Why are you here? They, went, they wanted to be with Jesus. That's not a bad place for us to ask, to ask ourselves at the beginning of our t- looking at the God's word this evening. Why are we here? What are you doing here? I have to ask myself that question. I'm going to be a lot nicer to know at the end of the service when I've preached. Because there are things that you're going on in your heart and your mind as you're getting ready. And am I just here because I'm preaching? Or am I here because I want to spend time with Jesus? And that could be true for each of us. Why are we here? What are we doing here this evening? It's great. After the service on a Sunday evening, you'll often see a group of younger people, I'm, I'm showing my age at the moment, sitting and talking and having fellowship together. In the old days, we used to have things called after-church fellowships, and there was a certain sense where you, you had to do the church bit first, and then you could have the fellowship afterwards. Are you here to be with Jesus this evening? Ask the band members. They spent a long time seeking to service, rehearsing, preparing for this evening. But we can sometimes get so involved in what we're doing that we forget the best reason we're here which is to be with Jesus. It's one of our uh, modern songs that says, when the music fades and all is stripped away, you're looking into my heart and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. That's a good question. Is it? Is it all about him? Is that why we're here this evening? Then a second question. Take off one of those words. What are you doing? Because John changes his focus. He moves from looking at the disciples as a whole and starts looking at Peter in particular. And if we go back again a couple of pages to 1082, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me 
three times. And as we're reading the um, section here in chapter 18, at first it seems that Peter is just carrying through with that boast, isn't he? There he is. Jesus is about to be arrested. And Peter draws out a sword. He's going to lay down his life for Jesus. Now, I might have a few questions, which the Bible doesn't answer, so I can ask them, but I won't give you any answers. Um, if, G if Peter really wanted to lay down his life, why did he use a high priest servant as his target rather than one of the soldiers? You'd probably get a better laying down your life if you chose a soldier. And the other question I'd have is, how good was Peter with his sword? He's got the whole of this man as his target and he only manages an ear. Not the most efficient use of a sword. Perhaps he hadn't been practicing as well as he should have been. But what we do know, one thing we're very clear about, is that what he was doing was not doing God's will. Verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? See, at first it appears that Peter's doing a good thing. He's doing something that will protect Jesus, will keep Jesus from harm. Isn't that a good thing? But he wasn't doing it in God's will. He wasn't doing it in God's way. And as soon as he went off God's way, we see it becomes increasingly and dramatically and disastrously the fulfillment of what Jesus had said. In verse 18, it was cold and the servants, official, servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. And we go on and on. We have his denial and his denial and his denial. And in verse 27, again, Peter denied it the third time. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Peter had drifted away. At first, it only seemed a little bit. But rapidly and disastrously, he'd gone away from God's will. And it ended up with him denying Jesus those three times. Just as the Lord Jesus had said. John Bunyan, uh, in his famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, talks about a time when his hero, Christian, and one of his friends come to a, a point where the road is a bit tough. And just close to the road, there's a, a nicer meadow. He calls it Bypath Meadow. And they look at it, and it seems to be going in the right direction. And they say, well, let's just get over the stile and go into this meadow. And almost at no time at all, they found themselves captured by giant despair and imprisoned in Doubting Castle. It just seemed a little bit at first. But once they stepped off God's way, they found themselves in a place of disaster, of despair and of doubt. And that was exactly what happened to Peter. And I wonder sometimes as Christians, in our own lives, in our families, and perhaps even in the family of the church, we start off wanting to do good things 
that we forget that we need to do them in God's way. And we can drift and move away and move away. So an old song that says, Oh, let me see your footsteps and in them plant mine own. My hope to follow duly is in thy strength, your strength alone. And that cry to, that for his help to make sure that we remain faithful to doing things for God in the way that God wants us to do them and not to go off in a different direction. What are you doing? The third question is, uh, that's a bit easier. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? And that leads us to just thinking about Judas. Uh, in chapter 13, uh, Jesus and Judas are having a conversation around the, the table. And in verse um, 27 of chapter 13, Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. And what Judas was going to do was he was going to sell himself and sell everything he, he knew to be good into the hands of the high priests for 30 pieces of silver. And that's why Judas came to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why Judas was there. And if you look at Judas, he seems to be the person who's in charge. He has the power, doesn't he? He has all the, the trappings of power. In verse 3 of chapter 18, Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And we see in verse, uh, boy, verse 15, um, no, sorry, verse uh, 12, the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. They had the trappings of numbers. They had the authority to arrest Jesus. Um, I trained as a, a lawyer many years ago. My first job when I qualified was in a firm where there was a department that dealt with shipping law. And that's uh, those group of lawyers. They used to have to arrest ships from time to time. I had no idea how you did that. Now, I think they told me the truth. I hope I wasn't being naive and stupid. But they said that, well, in the old days, what you used to do to arrest a ship is you need a hammer and a nail and a court document. And you'd nail the court document to the master of the ship and then you'd arrest it. Sounds like a rather early version of a great big yellow um, thing that you'd uh, put on a car tyre, but you probably didn't put that around the, uh, uh, the propeller of a ship. And it had to stop. And I must admit, there are times when I'm sitting in the uh, uh, cafe in John Lewis's, looking out over the, those great big cruise ships that in the docks and thinking, I wonder how they do that these days. But they came with that authority. They had the authority to arrest Jesus. And I wonder sometimes whether we are in a situation in our workplace, perhaps some of us even in our homes, where we face that sort of power, that sort of authority. Where we're alone, the only Christian in our office, 
where we're facing opposition from the sort of things that we're being taught and the, the way in which we're being taught them in the places where we're studying. Or maybe, as I say, even in our homes. I remember a, a lady who used to be escorted home from church of a Sunday evening because of the fear of what her husband might do to her when she got home. Maybe we face that sort of authority, that sort of power. But that power wasn't real because Judas needed somebody else to give him the authority to arrest Jesus. And that appears to come from Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest and the uh, father-in-law. And they have all the trappings of national power. They were the, the high priest that year, the most important authority in the Jewish nation. They were the ones who people came to and sought the soldiers to go to the garden. But even their power was just an illusion. If you go into verse 28, the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. They thought they had power. They appeared to have power. They had all the, 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 the pomp and the circumstance. But in reality, there was no power in them. They had to go to somebody else to be able to carry through with the plans that they wanted. Because the reality is that the person who had the power, who had the authority there in the Garden of Gethsemane, is the same one who has had that authority, that power since before the world began. It was God in the person of the Lord Jesus who was in charge there in the Garden. It wasn't Judas. It wasn't Caiaphas or Annas. Jesus was in charge. We see it in he, the fact that he knew what Peter was going to do. We see it in that he was able to guide Judas, to make sure that he came to the place where things would happen as God had intended. We see it in verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? And in verse 11, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus Christ was in charge there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Jesus remains the one who is in charge. He is in control of heaven and earth. He is in control of past, present and future. And he's in control in your situation whatever it might be. Whatever faces you as you go home this evening, whatever awaits you as you go to your place of study, to your place of work tomorrow, wherever God may take you, God is in charge. That never changes. Jesus Christ was in charge there in the Garden of Gethsemane and he remains in charge still to today. And then finally, our fourth question. The question of why? Why? Why did Jesus 
allow himself to be arrested? Why was it that Jesus permitted the high priest's soldiers to bind him, permitted someone to strike him as he was before the high priest himself? Why would he do that? And for that, we need to go to two particular references. One is in verse 11. It's the reference to a cup. And for that, we need to go back quite a long way. Go back to page 786, if you want to. It's, on, uh, it's in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 15. There's a similar reference in Isaiah. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. It's an image of a cup. A cup into which comes every single element of sin in our lives. Everything that we have said that is wrong. Everything that we have done that is wrong. Everything that we have failed to do that is wrong goes into that cup. And in that cup, it comes face to face, it comes together with God's holiness, God's perfection. We have a chemist among us. She might be able to tell us about chemical reactions. Well, this is a reaction of God's holiness when brought face to face with our sin. And the result is a toxic judgment of God against that sin. A toxic, just overflowing element of God's absolute righteous horror of the things that are wrong. It's God's wrath. And that cup is going to be drunk by one of two people. It should be drunk by us. But if, it, if we have to drink it, then our eternal fate is sealed. We will be away from God. We'll be destroyed. We'll be taken away from God's presence for all eternity. There is no hope for any of us, none of us, because of all the things that we have done. But Jesus could drink it for us. And there in the garden, Jesus had a choice to make. Would he leave us to drink the cup and face eternal separation from God? Or would he drink it himself and allow us to know peace with God and know eternity with God in his presence? That's the first image that's there. The second reference is to something that only John picks up. 
something that Caiaphas, the high priest, had said. It's there in chapter um, verse 14. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. And if we go back to chapter 11, we see in verse 49, it's on page 1078, towards the right-hand side of that page at the bottom, one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You don't, do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And perhaps Caiaphas was thinking in some sort of political way that if we could get rid of this troublemaker, Jesus, then we'll have a better relationship with the, Jewish, the Roman rulers. But John recognizes, and the Bible recognizes, this was much deeper than simply a political expediency. It says in verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, people like us, people who lived in the far-flung parts of the world, to bring them together and make them one. Caiaphas said, one man, one person, could drink that cup, could take the the pain, the penalty for our sin, for the sins of all who would put their trust in him. Would Jesus do it? Well, if this is an old-fashioned television program, I say come back next week and we'll give you the answer. Um, I don't want to be in any way taking somebody else's thunder, but I think we know what the answer is, don't we? This was a wonderful, glorious concept that somebody could die in our place, that somebody could bear the penalty for our sin, that someone could take that cup and drink it to the very dregs so that we would be able to know God for eternity. Would Christ do it? Oh, yes, he would. And oh, yes, he did. And we're here this evening. We're able to celebrate. We're able to come together. We're able to sing the songs we've sung because this is what Christ did for us. He took and drank. And one man did die for the people. But why? Why would he do that? Why would he choose to do that for me? Why would he choose to do that for you? You know the things that have gone into that club. You know how, well, you know why you don't deserve it. But for that, we need to go back again to the very beginning of this time in the upper, the time in the upper room, where John says this, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. 
He loved them to the end. The earlier translation, the earlier version of the New International puts that he showed them the full extent of his love. So when Christ left the garden, he went through that mockery of a trial. When Christ was taken outside the city walls, he died on the cross, he paid the penalty. He was indeed the man of sorrows. But he bore the sorrows of our sin so that we would know life and know eternity. Christ chose the cross. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Hallelujah. What wonderful love he has for people like us. He has for everyone who puts their trust in him.